it's pretty fun to have a hometown that's kind of grown up with you. The valuation of ideas and potential wasn't enough. You actually needed customers and profit. Most of the time, you're really just investing in people. Challenge yourself to put yourself out there. And you hope that good politics leads to good policy, which leads to good societal change. Hello there. This is George C. And you're listening to See the Future, a podcast focused on interesting conversations with interesting people in business, government, politics, and academia. Thanks for listening. Welcome Stacy Hawk to the program today. He's got a wonderful, interesting, fun-filled, and impactful life story to uh, get across. So Stacy, welcome. We're glad to have you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with kind of who you are, where you're from, what shaped you into who you are today and all that. Can you give our listeners kind of some backdrop on what the formative years of your life looked like? Yes. Well, I was born and raised here in Austin, and my family on both sides are longtime Texans. Came pretty much in the 1840s in both on both branches. That's early. It's early. Um, helped settle parts of East Texas on my mom's side. Where in East Texas? Elkhart. Okay. Is they came the stars came through Illinois and down from Chicago and founded Elkhart, John Starr. Is that near Paris or where is that? It's near Palestine. Oh, sure, yeah. Because see, my people landed in St. Augustine, which is about, I don't know, 70 miles south of there. So that's kind right. of the same general area. And on part of my dad's family, they showed up in Galveston, and we don't know where they were before that, so we joke they've got a storied background. And his family uh, really kind of... Mart, Marlin, um, and then he grew up in Lake Jackson. My mom grew up in New Braunfels, some time in Waco, and they both landed in Austin. And that's where they, um, he went to high school here, and she went to UT, and they eventually met later in their 20s, and um, I was born and raised here. So it's, you know, I've got family all over the state, and I feel like pretty deep Texas roots. And the great thing about Austin is it's such a different personality and vibe from a lot of rural Texas. So I feel like I always got the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. I got to romp around in East Texas and learn how to shoot a gun. And then I got to enjoy live music and um, the rivers and the great outdoors of Austin. And so it was very idyllic in many ways, my childhood. I'm a little jealous of your mom getting to grow up in New Braunfels and went back when it was a sleepy little village, so to speak. Absolutely. It's such an idyllic place and it's now it's now a suburb really. So it's it's still beautiful, but it's so different than what it was back then. She loved it so much that when I was going to middle school, she and my dad got the bright idea to try to move us there. Because hmm. she said it's just the perfect place to grow up and my brother and I revolted against that idea and convinced him to stay in stay in Austin, Northwest Hills, right where we were, which which we won that battle. But that's right. That was her experience. I mean, she just grew up swimming in the rivers and lots of freedom. And um, it's still fun to go back. We still go to Worst Fest and Schlitterbahn and um, polka dancing and Lambda Park. And we love it. My parents went to camp at, and some of the listeners here are going to go, why are you going down this route? But at uh, Camp Baltimore, Camp Stewart in the of Hill course, Country in the yes. 50s. And they bought a property down there in 1979. 
So I feel like I got just the last echoes of these small German towns before they became a lot more city slicker and civilized and all that. And they're just they're just wonderful, sleepy, strong communities. That's right. Yeah. But they're you know it's nice when things grow up. I'll tell you, you know, growing up in Austin, um, I loved it. And then I went to school in Boston, in Cambridge, and that's where I met my husband, who's from Pennsylvania. What part of Pennsylvania? He's from Carlisle, which is outside of Harrisburg. And his family on both sides, long-time Pennsylvanians. I can't even tell you how far back they go, but further back than we go in Texas. Is he Scottish or Scotch-Irish by lineage? uh, German. German, okay, Mm -hmm. interesting. More Pennsylvania-Dutch, German. Got it. And on both sides. And his family still has, on his mom's side, they had a farm in Gettysburg for a very long time, and they still have that. Oh, neat. And it's a really beautiful area. And then his dad's family was from northern central Pennsylvania. Tenant farmers, actually, way back in the day. and. Um, up in the Bloomsburg area. So, you know, we met in Boston and then I ended up coming back to Austin for work when I graduated and he followed me down here and fell in love with it. And we got married and started our life. And I remember coming back, it was such a different experience as a 20 something than as a high schooler. And I loved it then. It was really good for that life stage. And then we went about seven years later to New York New York was great. We were in New York about seven years. We had our first three children there, and we loved being in New York and our time there, but always knew we were coming back. And I remember when we moved back in 2013, we thought, man, we're so glad Austin has grown up because I don't know what... The food scene had always been good, but after living in New York for seven years, we needed it to be better. Yeah, I get that. (laughs) And it it had gotten better, so we were... We were greatly relieved that Austin had grown up in its own way. So it's pretty fun to have a hometown that's kind of grown up with you. Mm-hmm. You know, now the story today is that people are flocking here mm-hmm. from New York and from California and from Chicago. And they're not just coming here for jobs and lifestyle. They're bringing jobs. They're bringing mm-hmm. their business. They're making huge, it's a huge upheaval to make yeah. that kind of transition. And so I think it's a really exciting day because it's very validating for you know, my taking this towards politics and and policy, you know, my beliefs in Texas governance and that light governance model that really does. I've joked with my friends here in DC right now that I live in the land of the free because they live in the land of (laughs) the very government controlled. And, um, and I think it's just starting to show itself Mm -hmm. for what that means. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these very prosperous flourishing places, especially California that has every advantage uh, natural and otherwise, you know, it's you, you just stay there despite itself, despite bad government until eventually something kind of causes that to break. And that is a long time in coming, but a lot of times it takes a catalyst moment. And I think, you know, COVID this year has been that for, for a lot of folks. Have you ever heard of Rod Dreher by any chance? No. Okay. I'm glad that came up because you, you need to read Rod. He writes a blog for the American conservative mm-hmm. every day and he's just prolific. And he just issued, I think his fifth book it's called, and he actually was my first podcast on really? it. Yeah, I went to see him in Baton Rouge on the way to New Orleans with, with my wife. And he just finished a book called live, not by lies, which is a Solzhenitsyn quote from one of um, Solzhenitsyn's works. And his book basically has the premise that, the left, you know, everybody's looking to Trump strongman and worry about totalitarianism from the right. His argument is soft totalitarianism isn't just coming from the woke left. It's here. 
in that if you have the wrong viewpoints, if you are not in the elites of society, whether business or academia or whatever else, they'll cancel you. You get erased, you lose your job, you lose your public standing. Fascinating theory. And a lot of it, you're seeing it out there right now. So. Well, it's hard to believe and that that happens. You know, we hear about it. But it's happening so pervasively now that we're seeing folks self-censor, you know, for what's otherwise very reasonable uh, thoughts, very long-standing, you know, pro-free market kind of philosophies that our country has thrived under for a very long time. And to see thoughtful uh, resource, you know, kind of individuals who sort of have every advantage of exposure not to feel comfortable talking about pretty, you know, long-held mainstream ideas uh, for the fear of what kind of a targeted rebuke would bring, whether it's for them personally or for their business, it's, it's outrageous. And when you hear that and you think this is America, that can't be, I mean, I think that could quickly become not just an Achilles heel, but derail us. So I think he's right. I'm, I, you know, I'm sure I'm biased as we all are, but I'm much more concerned about the power that is in that and where, and what we're seeing today versus something that would, you know, be some sort of far right control. I'm sure you followed all the, the polling leading up to the election and that for the second election in a row, the Trafalgar group was really the only group that just almost completely nailed it yet again. And, you know, they blame it on the shy Trump voter and all this, but you can't explain all that just from that in that uh, the Susan Collins race in Maine, I mean, the polls were anywhere from her down six to her down 12 and she won by over nine. And that whole industry has been turned on its head. They cannot find the right people to ask you to vote for to get statistically significant results, you know? Well, no question. No question. I think at this point, there's not even a clear narrative because it's, you know, it would be easy if you could say, well, you know, it was the shy shy Trump voter again. This is why we couldn't reach them. But there was a huge amount, a totally unmeasured amount of Biden at the top of the ticket, Republican all the way down the ticket. And we saw that in every swing state. Nobody predicted Trump would lose, Republicans would regain the Senate. Mm -hmm. That was not even on anyone's radar. That's right. And um, to see that happen in state after state after state, I mean, in Texas, you know, Trump up by six, Cornyn by 10, Mm -hmm. and then all the way down. Some folks would say it was really traditional Republican values that that held everything up this time more than anything else. While there were certainly voters who turned out just because of Trump, you know, with the passion for for supporting the president, there were also a lot of voters who turned out rejecting what they were hearing from Trump, but supporting long-held, limited government ideals. And I think also a clear rejection of divisive radical elements on either extreme, really, because they they were saying, hey, divided government looks really good right now. Absolutely. We'll give 
Vice, former Vice President Biden the chance to show he really means it when he says he's going to try to be a peacemaker and a unifier. We'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious, but it'll be fun spectator sport. Well, let's back up for a minute to your career because I know you've had an interesting, fun career and also you've had the multiple children balancing with career. And you need to meet my wife at some point because my wife, Gretchen, has three kids. We have six kids between us and she's been technology investment banker and mom for years so y'all would have a lot of war stories to sort through let's talk about your career i would love that so uh you mentioned you like to have a lot going um and i'm of that ilk myself so my undergrad is in computer science electrical engineering with some concentrations in econ and math and I started off in the software industry. So enterprise software at the late 90s, early 2000s. How exciting. It was, it was an exciting time. Yeah. And a lot of opportunity. And it, there was really a talent war. I kind of got pulled into that at the end of, um, end of the 90s. And that was amazing. Uh, not just because of the wild fun ride it was, but because of the opportunity afforded. So I did get great mentoring right out of the gate. I got really good career opportunities right out of the gate. Um, and I continued along that path for, I would say, kind of the first phase of my career, enterprise software. And ended up at IBM kind of after the dot-com burst and got my MBA at the University of Texas. And then we went to New York and I was on a pretty traditional but like accelerated path at IBM. I was in a grooming program and so they wanted me in New York and I was running the software services business for the Wall Street territory, which meant all my clients were the big banks and insurance companies. So, you know, I, I was full steam ahead on that. And we went to New York, both for my career and for my husband. He was also, he's always, he's one of those that when he was a young person, he knew he wanted to be a software developer. Mm -hmm. And he's always loved programming. He was top of our class at MIT for that and um, has always just wanted to write code and likes to solve hard problems, likes to work with smart people went to join some of our friends who were doing a hedge fund. They were doing quantitative trading in New oh, York. Me. So when we left Austin, the big impetus was for he to go join them and for them to make a real go of that. And they have had tremendous success with that. So not too long into it, you know, we were expecting maybe a couple of years. We were in New York a couple of years and we were having our first son and I stopped working at that time because at that point, what I was making, I, I joke, there was a time when I made more money than Joel, but, um, <laughs> but what I was making didn't, uh, you know, it didn't make sense anymore compared to what he was. And so it was a pivot. Tough I, calls though. All these calls are tough. You know, you know, I had always intended to go back to work after having kids. Mm -hmm. And, and so that was interesting to realize how much of my sort of self-worth or identity I found in my career success mm. and to, but I was obviously also very motivated by the income. And mm -hmm. so that was a part of it. So when you took that off of it and I evaluated how best I wanted to use my time, that didn't muster the top anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, but it wasn't long into having children. I mean, Gideon may have been four months old when, um, you know, Joel would come home from work and I'd want to hear about his day and I'd want to say like, oh, you know, have you considered this or that and give him all sorts of advice or tips. And he was like, you're going to have to get your own thing because <laughs> 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 you cannot 
not me that you're uh, you know, helping me out with my thing. It's like, got it. You're overwhelming so, me. I don't need to do So, you know, I, um, I took on our personal investing and I also took on our uh, philanthropic efforts, which we had always been very intentional about, but now the money was coming in faster than we really felt good about allocating. And, you know, there's a lot of big philanthropy in New York. I mean, you can, there's, everything is there. What do you like um, to invest in? Well, so we were, I would say, very much like Warren Buffett style investors. We were okay. big believers in like U.S. equities. We were big believers in value and buy and hold, which was a great compliment to his job, which was the opposite of that. Um, That's interesting for me hearing about <laughs> enterprise software and and technology because most people who are that's their profession they tend to invest that way too. right which was what we started when I first started buying stocks you know when I first started making money right out of school mm -hmm. um, that's all we bought you know mm -hmm. Microsoft and you know things that we knew um, and then eventually I got a little bit more sophisticated and I became a believer in companies that make money um, obviously I had gone through the uh, dot book bubble burst and so watched you know how the the valuation of ideas and potential wasn't enough you know that you actually needed customers and uh, profit eventually do you know Adam Ross by any chance I do and Tara Ross he was in my office yesterday he just he, the other day he just came by to say hi because we hadn't talked for a long time I have back to how you invest and what you do with it I got to pick his brain at some point because he does all this startup stuff and he's killed it in that and I that's a world I don't really I'm not any good at right. I'm, I'm good at the world you're talking about right so you know <laughs> over the last so I started off doing like I said pretty traditional portfolio and equities and but you know in the last since then since I would say since I've kind of taken the real lead on it and been more intentional about it the last 12 years or so I mean we've done the gamut we've done mm -hmm. of course moving back to Texas lots of oil and gas mm -hmm. um, when we were in New York we did lots of hedge funds because mm -hmm. you do what you know all my friends in California they're doing all startups mm -hmm. and technology plays um, so eventually we got more sophisticated where we would find folks where we felt really good about like they're gonna do a real estate fund or they're gonna do you know, a minerals uh, play or whatever it is. Minerals. And so, you know, yeah. it has led to, and then we do the occasional angel things that mostly are, um, well, a very mixed bag. Uh, we've even, we've invested in a gin company, Bulldog Gin. Interesting. Huh? Really good. That we exited and uh, the company exited, it was bought out and that was a success. But, you know, it's a whole mix. We friends things it's and it's fun to watch people over time I mean I think with anything whether it's you're investing or you're uh, doing uh, like philanthropy most of the time you're really just investing in people mm -hmm. and so to watch people and how they you know after a while you start to find what you're comfortable with so one of the things that you know there's a group I've been watching for a while and I've not invested with them yet, but I was just telling Joel how I want to because I've been on their list because, you know, we have some personal relationship tie there. And I've watched how they're evaluating these small businesses that they buy that are operational. And a lot of times they're family owned and someone's ready to exit and they're ready to retire and they don't have someone to pass it on to or 
or it might be strategic and it could be anything. It could be landscaping or a concrete company or, you know, lots of different things. Mm -hmm. But just to see how they're evaluating these businesses, it, you know, I, I trust them. I trust what they're looking at right now. And that's totally something I would never do on my own. But um, I know people who do that small and large, and that's a, another market that I feel like we don't have easy access to invest in that. So when you find someone who you think is good at evaluating businesses and bringing something to the table, that's not a big private equity play, but is like a smaller piece um, and more relational, that's exciting. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a gamut. It's a wide gamut. It is. It's interesting. It's, it's fun to hear you talk about some of these things, too, because... Anyone who, uh, whether they have a balanced portfolio or where they have specific tilts towards value or growth, depending on their perspective, that the math right now is clear that value is the most undervalued vis-a-vis -vis growth in history. It's even worse than 2000. So whether that gap reverses the mean and closes or not, I mean, every every piece of financial um, academia would say it's reversing the mean is like, Gravity, it's going to happen at some point, but it hadn't yet. It's been a long, long stretch of growth being value. You talk about hedge funds too, and I every year took a trip around the world to go look at hedge funds all over the world in Australia, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, Zurich, London, as well as all the domestic cities. Wow. And we did, I don't know, several hundred million dollars of hedge fund investing over like 12 years. And finally, after about 10 years of our clients going, we don't understand this and we don't like it. And after taxes and fees, isn't this pretty so-so on returns? And we finally kind of moved on from the space and did a lot more private equity. So you change over time, you know, and mm -hmm. your husband is definitely in the best part of the hedge fund business. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul Singer's <laughs> become a friend in New York too with Elliot and that's a great business. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great business. It's gotten a lot more competitive. You know, mm -hmm. it just wasn't as, you know, people were just kind of figuring it out when they got started. And so I think they're really proud they've been able to continue to up their game. Yeah. Because it's extremely competitive. Right. Now. That's rare. Mm -hmm. I mean, the life cycle of a lot of these firms mm -hmm. is very short, as you know better than I do. Mm -hmm. So um, let's talk about philanthropy a little bit. I don't know if you've, you've heard of Bob Buford or you heard of a book called Halftime that he wrote. Uh, basically, he was a YPO guy and he had a, a cable company he started in East Texas and he sold it to one of the big cable firms and made a bunch of money. And his book is basically the premise of, you know, you run like the devil's behind you until you're 50 and then all of a sudden you hit the brakes, you have your big liquidity event and then you start doing philanthropy. Right. And I was kind of like, Okay, that didn't make any sense to me because you know you, you are who you are, and if you if you like giving money away, and if you have causes you believe in that you want to support, you want to do it throughout your life, you know. And most really aggressive people, if all they're focused on is money generation and themselves for the first fifty years, not many of them are going to flip and turn into big philanthropists in the latter half. So y'all got started early. What motivated you to start early and give back? Well, a couple things. I mean, at the heart of it all is our faith. And one of the very first Bible studies we did, if you can call it that, uh, when we got married was this financial study that talked about what does the Bible say about money and what does God say about money? And um, it was great because it covered a lot of things. It wasn't just basics of personal finance, but it was also work and honesty and children and a lot of really major tenets to building a life together. So it was a wonderful 
first thing to do together as a young married couple. And it helped us have a lot of conversations and come to kind of an understanding of what we cared about. So part of that was giving. And we started exercising kind of a basic tithe um, habit, you know, right out of the gate. And so as things progressed, that was already very natural. But, you know, when your uh, income's more modest and all those things, I mean, you're going to support your church, you're going to support some local um, entities, which we did that we had different ties to. It was all human services kinds of things. And that was something we were really comfortable with. But it was absolutely a meaningful part of our lives in our 20s. And so when we went to New York, we did research to figure out who do we want to support here. Uh, we were going to continue to support groups back in Austin, but we wanted to engage in New York. We were looking around for, okay, who does, you know, what's a, the Bowery Mission, for example, is one mm. example that does, you know, homeless, residential services, largest soup kitchen, etc. And so we were evaluating these different groups that were similar to some folks we had supported here and started to uh, support, support them. So it became really natural. What happened when all of a sudden the income kind of hockey sticked, we discovered, you know, a, a, right off the gate, people were like, well, you know, you're going to probably want to create a, like a foundation. And we looked into it and just decided, unless you really want to be operational, we didn't think it made sense for us anymore now that they've mm. created donor advice funds. Right. So we just opened a donor advice fund. and Which firm? Fidelity. Fidelity. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you didn't do it through like National Christian Foundation, like just through Fidelity. Just through Fidelity. And Fidelity Services, it's the one thing we do with them. But I will say their donor advised fund is amazing. It mm -hmm. has, we have considered working with some other pretty good like private wealth groups and their services aren't what Fidelity's are. It's so mm -hmm. easy for me to go online and make grant requests. And I mean, it's just, I can do it on my phone in a minute. Mm. Um, and they can find anybody and they'll research anybody and it's just so easy. And so it's been, and you can invest in anything. You don't just have to invest in some sort of, you know, fidelity kind of offerings. It was like, literally we can invest in anything. Hey, so. I'll tell you a funny story. I had a good friend of mine I grew up with who just a wonderful guy. Um, he's different than me, uh, politically, but he went to Tufts and he met his wife who's just lovely at Tufts. She's from Galveston. And he was saying the other day that his wife's roommate in college was Abby Johnson. Wow. <laughs> and they said that she's just the most down-to-earth, nice, low-key, humble person you could ever find. Oh, my goodness. They're just lovely people. And, of course, that business is ridiculous. It's been so successful. So yep. it says a lot about their family that they still, that's who they are. Well, um, it was the greatest thing because what we could do was just put everything into this fund that – we could maintain the same habit of knowing we wanted to give a certain proportion of our income away without feeling the pressure of having to allocate it right away. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a wonderful vehicle. And, you know, I think that many of our friends who had also kind of started to make more wealth than they ever had before in New York, I mean, I don't mean, I, I don't want this to sound boastful, but they did tell us that we were a go-to for them to understand how to start engaging in philanthropy. Oh, how and fun so is that? even though it was, it was, nice so, it was such so honoring. And, um, 
And it wasn't that we had any expertise other than just that we had been doing it at some level and we were a little more intentional about it. And then, you know, occasionally, you know, New York's great about events. It's so easy to invite people, you know, buy a table to something and they could hear about what they do and kind of have fun with it. And lots of different kinds of events, not just stodgy tables. It, I was really proud to be able to um, kind of offer that or share that with our crowd. And it, I do think I have a lot of friends who are extremely focused on their business and wealth generation. And they, you know, focusing on the philanthropic piece is not, you know, top of mind for them right now. And in many cases, they have said, I'll do that later, mm-hmm. you know, to your point. And I, to that, I say to each their own. I am in no way saying sure. there's the right or the wrong way because there are organizations that we've given significant amount of money to that I'm not sure how fruitful it was, you know, in the end. I'll join that club. Yes. I've done that too. And so, you know, you just have to hold that very loosely. And certainly if you feel like you're doing this as part of just, you know, whether you're thinking of it as like, hey, I'm just handing that over to God and what happens with it is like, I'm not going to necessarily take that on. You have to hold it loosely as far as like being responsible, being intentional, um, being thoughtful, but also uh, so many things. You just never know, you know, what um, what's going to end up being extremely meaningful and what's, what's, what's not, or even to know what impact you, you really had. Um, so I feel like I've learned a lot, but I don't think there's any right way or wrong way. I think the, the challenge yourself to put yourself out there. And, um, but other than that, you know, and think about, you know, what does that mean to you and how do you want to engage? And it almost always is, you know, that old adage, you get back more than you give. Um, I think it's so, you know, it's what a fortunate and easy position to be in, to be able to, you know, be the person who's writing a check. That's the easiest piece of the whole puzzle, which leads me to the next stage, which was moving back. So kind of got really involved in philanthropy, really enjoyed that. Um, served on a bunch of boards, great outlet for me, business outlet, mm-hmm. um, with these really high functioning nonprofits, in some cases, really large ones, in some cases, small, international, domestic, all sorts of different things. Well, we were moving back to New York, I mean, to Texas, to Austin, and Phil Graham reached out and he said, Stacy, you're coming back to Texas, and I know you've been trying to raise everyone's boat through policy change, or through philanthropy, excuse me, and I want you to do it through policy change. And I, you know, you're going to be in Austin. I think you could have a real outsized voice for, you know, good ideas, good policy ideas. And I had never thought about policy advocacy while I considered it extremely important to human flourishing, good governance. Um, I never thought about that in a philanthropic sense. I thought of it as something I cared a lot about, particularly economic policy at the federal level. And I thought about how Texas didn't have an income tax and had a balanced budget amendment and uh, pretty light on regulation. A lot of work had been done on tort reform. I was like, we're kind of in a good place. And he was like, well, just take a look at it, see what you think. And by that time, through philanthropy, I had started to get involved with criminal justice efforts and certainly with education Mm -hmm. from a philanthropic perspective through charters and scholarships and everything. So I was really looking in Texas at uh, criminal justice reform policies and education reform policies and, you know, found that there was still a lot of work to do. And that connected me with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, 
kind of dove in there big time. And uh, Doug Deason, it must be a partner in crime. Then. He is. He is. Absolutely. Uh, probably my favorite partner in crime when it comes to those things. But um, uh, yeah, I really took a, I decided to really focus on education because that was something that no one was really leading. Um, the criminal justice reform had some good momentum behind it. We had already taken that. We'd broken those initial seals. And by that time, Perry was totally bought in. Um, Abbott was more reserved in that area. You know, he came from this prosecutor, um, attorney general, Supreme Court background. So he's very law and order. Um, but he, too, knew that the reforms we had made had been fruitful for the state. And he was open. You know, he just kind of wanted to maybe take things a little bit slower than Perry was comfortable with. Nobody was really fighting for education reform anymore in the way that, you know, there had been a huge push under Leinecker in the 90s. And in the, in the 08, it kind of like culminated in this moment, and everyone felt like Craddock lost his speakership over that, and it died mm. um, with, with Strauss taking over. And so anyway, I um, decided that that was worthwhile. And it's been interesting to be back in Texas and to watch you know, that transition from like pure human services through philanthropy to transition to thinking about policy change that are still very social-focused to then see how all policy leads to politics and go get extremely involved in politics more than I ever expected. And that brings us to present day where I just served as victory chair for the Republican Party of Texas mm -hmm. this last cycle. So my first fully partisan role. Um, and then at the end of the day, you know, um, you end up going back to like direct human services because that's something that's like acute and needed now and it's you can actually do it. You know, policy change is this systemic thing and politics is surely, you know, downstream so or way upstream. You hope that good politics leads to good policy, which leads to good societal change. It's it's interesting to try to balance all of those different fronts and you know, fit in where, where you best have something to offer. Well, it's what John Corn has always told me that if you don't win elections, you can't do anything. And the whole reason to ever do anything political is so you can get stuff done. That's good for everybody. So can you talk about has getting more involved in politics? Has that been a positive thing or a necessary evil? I mean, how do you, how do you view that? Has it been enjoyable or has it been more just a means to an end? For the most part, I would say it has been enjoyable. I enjoy people. I enjoy getting to know people. I think it's not something that most people enjoy. So if you are someone who likes policy, then you should probably engage in some way in policy. And if you're someone who likes politics, you should probably engage in some way in politics. Um, while trying to make sure you're balancing that with why, what's the why behind it? Because like anything, you can get caught up in it and kind of lose the why. And I think that that happens. I think it's been really helpful for me to remember that all of our elected officials are just people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, relationships matter. Mm -hmm. And these days, it's almost an impossible job. They just, it's this 24-7 tenor, this like social media platform where everyone's just tearing each other down constantly. There's very little respect. There's very little grace. Uh, there's less and less just basic community and civil discourse. And 
I just think we're asking too much of folks and um, in a way that it's going to be discouraging for people to really serve in that way. Um, it's going to be one of these things that costs too much and does too little. You're going to question, how much can I really get done? Um, I have to spend all this time campaigning or you know, being on the road or fundraising or whatever it may be, and I'm, I'm supposed to have an answer for every single thing that happens all over the world 24-7, which is unrealistic. Um, people have areas of expertise, and so they're going to be fed sound bites and so I do think that's not, I think where we're at right now is not sustainable. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it leads to the best individuals serving in those roles over time. You know, I think it's people are going to fatigue and, and step away. Um, however, you know, this cycle, we had great candidates run. And people always say, gosh, it's all about the candidate. And we had so many great candidates run. So that's super encouraging. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's back and forth. Um, I do think you're right, though, when you said it all comes down to having folks in that decision-maker role. Because you can do all the party politics you want or, um, you know, all the... Uh, things around it, but at the end of the day, there is an individual who is going to vote and represent us, and or they're going to have an executive role or you know whatever their elected role may be, and it's having the right people in those decision maker roles that really does make a huge difference. Well, you're too modest to say this, but you've got to be feeling super great about what just happened because. Outside of losing a couple of key congressional races, Genevieve Collins and Wesley Hunt, I mean, in Texas, at least, Republicans kind of ran the table on everything else. They, they didn't lose any ground in the Texas House. They only lost one seat in the Texas Senate. They, they picked up a bunch of congressional seats and Corrin won going away and the president won by an outside the margin of error margin, too. So, I mean, it just was slam dunk all the way through. So your efforts really, really paid off. It was amazing. You know, sometimes you feel like things really go your way, and that's what happened here. Um, but I think Texas Victory played a, a truly a meaningful role. We are we were the statewide ground game, and we were the field effort. And it kept being modified because of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we kept trying to think, okay, can we door knock? Can we do events? Okay, we're not going to do events, but we're going to door knock, and this is how we'll be respectful. Okay, we can still phone call. We can still send texts. We can still, you know, voter ID. We can still be persuasive. Um, and then we can, you know, get out the vote. And so it all started a year ago really with a pretty good registration effort, that larger volunteer registration effort than the party had done in a very, very long time. It had been forever. It had been forever. And then that rolled straight into um, what, you know, after the primary was the victory effort as far as identifying folks, what they cared about, and then talking to them about those ideas and making the case for Republican governance, continued Republican governance in Texas, and then getting them to go vote. And so for a long time, we were knocking on people's doors and getting great response when the Democratic Party was not at all. And I still believe, and, and we were focusing on the target swing areas. We weren't, you know, um, 
there's a lot, you know, people talk about, thank goodness for rural Texas, and it drives up, you know, coroner's numbers and other statewide official numbers. Um, but we were very, very focused on the Texas House and the congressional delegation and making sure that we didn't lose control of the Texas House and that we didn't lose our congressional seats. Um, the money was pouring in. I mean, the Democratic uh, Congressional Committee opened an office in Texas in April of 19, in Austin, actually. And, you know, they raised a ton of money saying, we're going to, this is going to be a huge part of our effort. And that continued all the way through. I mean, people thought Biden had a chance. And certainly at the Texas House, even in the last two months, $60 million came straight into Texas House. That's crazy. We were outspent two, three, four X as a, you know, some of these races, they were seven figure races, which is unusual for, for our little house. It's totally insane. Yeah. So yes, I will tell you the day after the election, I was on a high. The oh, fact yeah. that at the end of the day, they didn't gain one seat, much less take over the house. They didn't gain one congressional seat. We held on to every seat. You know, I thought Tony Gonzalez was going to be close. Chip Roy was going to be close. Beth Devine was going to be close. We were disappointed we lost our challengers. I mean, Wesley and Genevieve were great candidates. But man, the fact that we didn't lose a single congressional seat, that was That's huge. unbelievable. Cornyn yeah. um, by 10 was huge. To watch that vote in the Valley, you know, just very much pushing away from a, a, a pretty far left narrative. Yeah. And um, really for a secure border, for jobs. It was so exciting to see. I was on high. I don't know how you feel about this either, but I, I really think that we got super lazy and smug in this state for a while. And I think you have to lay it a little bit at the door of the leadership of the state because they're the ones who are the watchmen on the wall keeping us from invasion, so to speak. So it's very encouraging to me to see the voter registration effort and the get out the vote effort being so effective and so well done this year. And I think we need to do it four more cycles. I think if we're going to keep Texas red with all this, all these people coming to us and keep our philosophy sound and all that, we got to go find about another million Republican voters and get them registered to where we maintain some spacing. That's right. And it's not just registering new folks, but it's also making the case to folks who traditionally may have voted blue mm -hmm. and are deciding that they're maybe better represented you know, by Republican governance, especially in Texas. And so I do think we have a real opportunity that we haven't had. And I think you're, of course, right. I mean, once, you know, we hit this supermajority moment, you know, a decade ago, and yeah, you get pretty um, secure, you know, it's easy to get kind of lazy. And next thing you know, we're just fighting with each other. And um, so I do think we did kind of hit an existential crisis in 18, where we finally got to a place that folks were like, Okay. Okay. Let's time go. out. <laughs> <laughs> no more civil war. <laughs> Let's go uh, aim at them for a little bit, and uh, we'll come back to this. And so, what a what a relief for that. Um, but it served it served us well. And there's a lot that you can that we should be doing in a more unified way here in Texas. So I think it. Yeah, I think we're hopefully just breaking the seal on what's possible. So I could do this for hours, but we're kind of running out of time. So I thought I would close by asking, what's next? What's the BHAG, so to speak, for you coming up? You know? Well, that is a good question. I've had that um, I've had that asked a few times. And right now what's next is holiday planning and 
Um, we're developing a ranch and kind of just finishing that up. So I'm getting to do all the interiors, which is fun. super fun. And, Where is it? Uh, it's on the Lano River between cool. Lano and Mason. And uh, we're really enjoying that project a lot. I bet you are. You know, we hardly talked about them, but we have these four young boys. And that's, of course, a huge, you know, passion project. <laughs> Boy, heaven. So, yeah. absolutely. We've had a family so, place between Kirtle and Fredericksburg for 42 years. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So, yes, we're about 25 minutes north of Fredericksburg, which is great. So are you I'm near Enchanted Rock? Yes. Oh, cool. So not, I mean, about, like I said, about 25 minutes north of there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we love Enchanted Rock. So I'm excited to be able to go just, you know, set up base out there, you know, for a week or so at a time and explore the area. And, um, but we are already loving being out there uh, regularly. We're probably going out this weekend and we'll be out there after the holidays. So to answer your question, I don't know, you know, you always need these moments after these big pushes to kind of just rest and think about that and that's the exciting thing about all these different you know the world of possibility right now i think so bullish on america and texas and, and austin and austin and i love meeting all the folks who are moving here and just want to engage immediately just hit the ground running and so you know i don't know that i have a course charted i think at this point i'm just kind of taking it in and enjoying it and we'll see what what ends up being the next thing for me to really dive in on sometimes that's the right answer it's just kind of leaving everything open in the palms of your hands for a while and seeing what turns up so well i know whatever it is it'll be spectacular so well, thank th you thank you stacy this has been a great pleasure and been a really fun visit well likewise Thanks for listening to See the Future. This is George C., and I'll hope you join us for our future conversations. 